You're watching Global Trade This Week with Pete Mento and Doug Draper. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to Global Trade This Week. I'm Pete Mento, and with me, as always, is the intrepid and damn handsome Doug Draper. Doug, how are you, buddy? I'm doing great, Pete. I appreciate that. Intrepid, I haven't heard that word in, in a little bit. I am uh, kind of think I know what it means, but I'll take it as a compliment. Oh, it means incredibly courageous in the face of certain danger. Wow. Okay. Hell yes. Thank you very much. Yeah. Hey, yeah. I'm glad I could I could boost your spirits yeah. on, a, on, a, on a day like today, Doug. Yeah, yeah hey, for sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm fired up, man. It's going to be a great episode. going to be a great week next week. Um, yeah. What well, more I, could a couple of guys ask for? couple of country boys with laptops ask for. Yeah, that's right. Middle-aged bald men. I love it. And then we'll talk more about next week at, at, at halftime. Uh, give everybody uh, the hype up video, so to speak. So it'll yeah, be man. fun. Yeah. So, uh, Doug, you know, what do you got? Let's just do it. Let's just do it. What do you got, buddy? All right. So this topic um, has been some personal experiences with my company and then some um, – uh, in, indirect uh, conversations with other customers. And here's the topic. It is Amazon is starting to let go of the reins. And I think it's going to benefit everybody. And what I mean by that is, uh, you know, Amazon built their logistics network a la Bezos style, meaning complete control, right? I actually had a buddy, well, uh, my wife's good friend's husband, uh, uh, used to work at Amazon. He just retired. He's a little bit younger than you and I, and he started from day one whenever Bezos had doors as desks, um, you know, uh, total control. So anyway, I digress. But the two things that are happening is in warehousing, which is my direct connection, and transportation. Um, so anyway, Amazon would own all their warehouses for years as they developed it. They could determine where they wanted them. It was their box their control, their people, and they did the same thing with transportation. I'll explain that in a second. But the warehousing piece is what's going on out there, Pete, is they're starting to essentially outsource some of their, um, you know, their, their requirements, and, or not their requirements, but their, their warehousing. And the, the key thing is coming from the racking companies, right? So there's been several companies that I know in the racking industry that go out and rack and set up all the, the handling equipment and warehouses. And Amazon is deferring um, those uh, rack companies to other companies uh, and third-party providers to kind of take over operations. They've done it with, an, um, with a major uh, facility out in, um, in New Jersey, where you are now, Pete, where they're like, we're, we're out of it. We're not taking down a lease anymore. There's, there's too much um, capacity in the warehouse market. And and, uh, and and rates are falling and everything else. So my point is, is that they're starting to get out of owning their facilities and they're starting to engage with 3PLs a little bit more. And they're showing that by turning off uh, contractors and things that have gone in to historically outfit their buildings. So you're gonna see that more and more, they're either not gonna renew leases or they're gonna open up spots that they wanted to be in, but they're gonna use a 3PL. The other piece is um, pulling back on the transportation. So. There's a new Prime, you know, so if you're Amazon Prime, you got to sign up. And one of the things you have to commit to is make two-day delivery uh, on anything you're selling 
if you're designated as a prime, uh, a prime customer. And so um, when that was there, if you and I were selling widgets, Pete, we would have to go on to Amazon's portal. They would tell us what company to use, FedEx, UPS, DHL, whomever. They would print the label and they would push us the label. And that is the label we'd have to put on our package. Again, controlling the transportation. So they've changed thing on, on October 1st. There's some new procedures involved. Everybody whether you're a prime member or not, has to kind of reapply to be prime. And rather than pushing labels to you and dictating what service provider and what service level needs to be used to make the two-day, they're just laying out metrics and saying, we don't really care how you get it there. Just make sure it gets there in two days, and we're going to monitor the hell out of you to make sure it's done right. So the control is back in the shipper uh, and the prime, uh, the company that signed up for prime. So again, they're managing metrics. They're not telling you what uh, what carrier to use. And they're also, you may have seen this, Pete, where they're coming out with the deferred prime. They're not really calling it deferred, but if you can't meet the expectations with prime, um, there's kind of a deferred service that you can play in. As long as it gets there uh, within four or five days, you're kind of on the second tier down. But the whole point in this, Pete, is that Amazon was all about control in their physical buildings and how they move product across the country in order to meet prime requirements. All of that is waning and they're letting go and they're managing metrics and not doing the control. So I think ultimately that'll be good for people that are involved in selling something on Amazon. Um, I don't think it really affects the consumer because I'm not paying for the, for the transportation, just get it to me in two days. So it's an interesting pivot that has, uh, is a 180 from the way Amazon has grown their logistics network. Yeah, when I saw this topic, Doug, I, I, I kind of got three opinions that like immediately sprung in my head. The first one was, did they plan this? Like, did they see the market, what was happening to the market? And did they just immediately say, the market has gotten so soft, should we start playing the downturn? And did they know enough about what was happening to take advantage of the soft transportation market and just start, you know, playing the lower and I, I don't know i mean could they have could they have possibly known that this was going to happen and were, were there leases and were there contracts coming up and they're like i don't don't even bother just start playing the markets that would be pretty impressive and mm -hmm. i don't know the answer to that but but maybe the, the logistics press will will give us some insight to that that would be that would be pretty impressive mm -hmm. the second thing that sprung to mind was as a consumer I buy stuff on Amazon. I'm sure you and Keenan do too. And I always click that prime toggle on top because I want to get it in a couple of days. And it does drive my behavior. I will generally buy something I'm going to get in two days rather than buy something that's going to show up in two or three. And I'm, I'm, I imagine that that's going to impact the sellers. So, um, I wonder if there are consumers that are going to say, I'll buy things that are on that deferred service that's going to come in three or four days if I'm going to save 10, 15%, because that's just smarter in an economy like we have right now. And then from the seller's perspective, you know, you're saying if it just gets there, we don't really care how, it's going to push them down the algorithm. They're going to find themselves not as desirable a product from people who are willing to 
make the steps and do what they need to do to be higher up the algorithm. And with the, you know, just the unbelievable amount of choices that people have on Amazon, that's not good for them. So I think it's going to, it's going to drive behaviors of the seller and it's out of Amazon's hands. So it's going to save them money one way or the other. It's going to save them money. They're still going to make their profit. They're still going to get their piece. Um, it's going to actually take money out of the seller's hands. And I wonder if that's going to, I doubt, I doubt it will push sellers onto other platforms because Amazon just has such a chokehold on the mm -hmm. collective consumer's minds. But, but wow. I mean, it's just, it's, it's so incredible that in such a short amount of time, one company can have such a massive impact on the, uh, the collective purchasing mindset of the entire country. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, we'll see. I'm sure there'll be all kinds of analytics and trends and talking heads like ourselves, um, bringing it up during fourth quarter because it starts fourth quarter, So we'll see how that changed the buying habits uh, during the holiday season. And all the people that probably make a living only looking at, that company. There are probably people who do nothing but cover Amazon as a job in the press. You know, there are. And they got to find nuts. something to write about and talk yeah. about. And, and they, they make enough content, man. Yeah. yeah. Cool. All right. All right well, what you got? Tech, topic one. Yeah. I, I get to um, put on my, my mantle of Dr. Doom again here, but I'm, I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure that I want to, I want to be Dr. Doom here. So let's wait till the end. All right. So here's just some fun facts with crazy uncle Pete. Okay. So as of today, the Hong Kong stock market has officially gone into bear territory. The one has fallen. The Chinese currency has fallen to the lowest level in 16 years against the dollar. The central bank of China has just absolutely freaked out and they've set uh, the RMB to the highest level against the dollar ever, ever, Doug, mm -hmm. right? So as long as we've recorded ever, Chinese exports have stalled. So for the last two months, they've just stalled. So that means that that output of produced goods out of China to all accepting markets are not growing. The real estate market is on the verge of by China's own admission. So this isn't like foreign press who looks at it by China's own admission. It's um, the bubble they believe is about to burst. Uh, as I've mentioned in the past, each regional, uh, each regional government is pushed into stimulus by the central government of China. So they make them borrow money to go into, uh, into these stimulus projects where they build things in local government. They're begging the central government not to make them go into more stimulus projects, saying, please do not make us borrow money against our land to do more stimulus projects. They're begging them for that. Youth unemployment is at an all time high. It's so bad that China has said, hey, listen, we're just not, we're not gonna publish the statistics anymore because we, we don't wanna let anyone know that. And economic growth in China is expected to fall below 5%. Now their, their measurement for, for being successful as a government is 5.5%. They're expecting the official number to be below 5%. So, you know, Burry, the guy who called the big short, he took a, a major part of his portfolio to bet against the global economy. Um, and he's basically short of the global economy. And by the way, before everyone freaks out about that, he did some, some trickery on how he put that money in there. So don't be too impressed. And he's been wrong before. 
Berkshire Hathaway, as you mentioned before, has done something similar. There's a lot of people that are shorting the global economy. Uh, and, and folks are, are calling this and they're saying that if China tumbles, this would be the, 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 the release of the knot at the end of the balloon that would cause a, a global correction of the global economy that we've all really been waiting for post-COVID. It's kind of been a long time coming. And there's another economic school of thought that says that this, this releasing of the global economy has been happening all along, but it's been happening in fits and starts around the world, just not all at once. And this is finally China's turn to kind of, you know, get theirs. Um, another, another course of thought. So the big question is, are we finally seeing China take that ass whooping? I think that's actually a technical economic term mm -hmm. that we've all been waiting for. Or will the Chinese economy find a way to correct this in a way that only their economy can? So what does that mean? Could China say, we're nationalizing all of these failed assets? Because we can. We're, we're buying all of these failed assets. They're now the property of China. These are now all houses that we own. And we will allow people to live in them. And we'll rent them back to people because we can. And then at a time where it is economically feasible, we'll sell them back at a profit. Eh. Um, let's see. We will put out bonds to these local um, governments um, and we'll sell them at reasonable rates. And then someday when the market comes back, we'll make a killing on them. They could do all kinds of wacky things. You know why? Because they're a centrally controlled communist government. And they don't have to play by rules that any other government does. Now, would, a local, would the market trust that? I don't know. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, most of my money is in comic books and baseball cards. So why would you listen to me? This show does not give investment advice for a reason. So the, the whole world is, is staring at this, thinking the sky is falling. But there's an equal number of people who are looking at it saying, you cannot look at the Chinese economy with any degree of certainty that you would look at any other economy because mm -hmm. it's not like any other economy. <clears throat> and I'm starting to listen to that argument with a little more interest than I think I listened to the other one, Doug. Yeah. Well, it's uh, a gigantic backstop. I, I, I like your comment where that's just start buying the assets that have been, that, that have failed. Right. Um, <clears throat> and so the, the rhetoric that's being pushed out, I think things are probably worse really than they're talking about. They have an image to uphold, um, yeah. you know, and so it, um, they're dribbling out what what they want to hear, but the backstop that is the communist government is, is massive. The one piece that struck me, and maybe it's just uh, because of what happened to the U.S. in 2008, is the real estate conundrum that's going on out there, right? Where there's these massive, and we've all seen pictures of it, these massive, just insane, hundreds of thousands of apartments that just sit idle, right? Um, I there was this one, one group that is called Country Gardens that has pretty much halted almost everything that they're building. Um, and, and, and the two pieces there that I read uh, doing, doing some research on this is that um, they would do the pre-sales, but it's not like pre-sales here where you and I would put down earnest money as, as a goodwill and that's what's used to fund the project. They literally start taking a mortgage out, so to speak, on house that isn't even built yet or the apartment that's not even built yet and with this company in particular country gardens if the pre-sales start to dip 
they start to slow the construction, which is a pretty smart business play, but um, it, it it's crazy. So I don't know if the real estate market can do as much damage to China as the mortgage lending chaos in 20, 2008 did to the United States. But that's the one thing that I'm going to personally keep an eye on is what's going on with all this real estate. Um, but the bottom line, Pete, like you indicated, it's a communist country. It's one hell of a backstop. And if shit goes south, um, they can they can correct it the old fashioned way and just gobble it up. <laughs> yeah. I mean, imagine that if China's like, well, we're nationalizing all these assets. So we own them now. And we're just going to, we've got 1.2 billion people here. So we're just going to have them move from this place to this place. So pack up your crap. 100,000 people are moving here now. And we're going to open up a whatever. And I know that sounds absurd to all of us, but absurd is kind of the middle name. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it's as crazy as it sounds. So when that came across my ears in a conference call the other day, I took it. I was like, oh, and then I went, oh, maybe that's not as nuts as it sounds. So, um, you know, 30 years now, more than that, 40 years now, I've been, I've been, I've been exposed to China, and every every minute now, I, I take it with a little bit of fish sauce whenever I hear something crazy, because it's mm-hmm. not as nuts as it sounds, my man. Yeah, yeah. All right, we're gonna jump into halftime. Um, one of my favorite parts of the show, uh, brought to us by Cap Logistics. We always say. They're the ones that push the buttons and turn the levers here to make this thing happen. You and I wouldn't be sitting here talking today without those guys. So Keenan, thank you. Cap Logistics, thank you. CapLogistics.com. Go check it out. Um, I'm going to let you go second. I'm going to jump in here, right? Okay. And, and our, our half times have been kind of serious lately. You know, we, we've gone away from the the, um, the 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 candy analogies and stuff like that. But one thing we spoke about last week, Pete, is our um, our show that we're going to be doing uh, at Casa Bonita, it's next Monday, the 28th. It's going to be at 3.30 p.m. And we're not like in Casa Bonita. We're going to be hanging out at a bar that is literally right next to Casa Bonita. So you'll see uh, the wonderful uh, 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 restaurant behind us, uh, West Facts. West Facts, like Colfax. West Facts is the brewing. We'll throw it, uh, you know, so you can check it out. I'll do this. Look for it here on your on your screen. But 3.30 p.m., uh, we'll do a remote, you and I. I'm not sure what the hell we're going to talk about, but it'll certainly be fun. And if there's listeners out there that are local to Denver, come out. Pete and I will be in person 3.30 p.m., Monday the 28th at West Fax Brewery, right next to Casa Bonita. We're going to have a good time. Casa Bonita adjacent, Doug. That's how I'm describing it. Is that? Okay, next to. I like adjacent better. And it literally yeah. is adjacent. It's not like it's across the parking lot. And we're kind of like, you see that small dot over there? I mean, we're, we're in the thick of it. Yeah. Um, I will bring my cheesy poops and my chicken pot pie. And uh, <laughs> the, the South Park stuff is going to just be flowing out of me. And I just, I don't even <laughs> care, Doug. I'm so fired up. I love that show so much. Yeah. It'll be it good. So It'll yeah. be good. Cool. All right. And I'm, so I'm mostly excited, Doug, to have the three of us all in the same place. Yeah. 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 We've so, not done... We can, prove, done a show we can prove once and for all that you and Keenan are not the same person. <laughs> all right. What do you got, man? I like your topic. Yeah. So um, I had a great dinner last night with a dear friend of mine from Wayfair who I've not gotten to see in a long time. It was great to catch up with her. <clears throat> and then I came back to my hotel room 
here in New Jersey, um, popped open a nice cold bottle of water and turned on the Republican primary debates, which were, I don't know how informative they were, but it sure was fun for me to watch. And um, as I always do, because I have this myopic attitude towards political um, political conversations, I was waiting to hear about trade. And I really didn't, Doug. So for however long that tantrum lasted on television, I didn't, I didn't get any. I didn't get any. And in a time when international relations has so much at stake with regard to international trade, international economics, much of the talk that had to do with IR really was um, deeply surrounded on um, a lot of, uh, you know, of course, the necessary anti-China rhetoric. But we didn't talk about trade. We didn't get into the U.S.-Mexico relationship, the U.S.-Canada relationship, the necessary energy talk. It was just avoided. So it appeared a time when many Americans are concerned about what's going on with the supply chain, what's going on with, um, with global trade. And, and just think back to a year ago. Think back to 16 months ago. Not a word. And I found that a little bit concerning. But maybe that's just me. And I'm not your normal voter. I'm not your normal anything. And I'm okay with that. But I, I do hope that in the coming debates that there's a little more discussion about what's happening with global trade so that people can be informed on what these particular folks that are running, probably more likely for vice president than president for mm -hmm. the Republican Party, have to think about where international trade fits in politically with that party. Yeah, yeah. I think the only person that made mention was Nikki Haley. She made comment about um, EV batteries being made over, over in China. I don't remember exactly what the context was, but... Yeah. yeah, that debate, my wife, who is not very political, wanted to watch it. And within 20 minutes, she's like, this is insane. She got up and left just because it was talking over people and a bell goes off to say your time's over and they talk for another 20, 30 seconds. And yeah. I, I don't know, it was, it was I, I would love to go back, Pete, and look at what a presidential debate looked like in the 80s and early 90s compared to what debates are now. It's almost like much must uh, must watch TV because there's going to be some outlandish comments and personal attacks and, and talking over each other. So it's, it'll be interesting, but you're right. I didn't hear one thing other than Nikki Haley making that mention um, about trade. I have some great ideas, Doug, on how to make the, the debates better. The first one would be if you run over time, I give you one warning. And then the second time I have um, Pete's wheel of correction. And on that <laughs> wheel of correction would be either I shoot you with a paintball gun and I'm aiming for your open mouth as you speak. So that's that's one. Second would be all uh, participants have a shock collar, and without warning, I'm just going to I'm just going to shock you. Um, there's going to be a trap door where I just hit the button and you're done. You're done. You're absolutely done. Um, and, and this one I'm I'm really rather fond of. Do you remember on Nickelodeon there was a slime bucket? Oh yeah, yeah, I love yeah. it. I'm just going to hit you with a slime bucket and you have to stand there for the rest of the debate with a slime bucket. <laughs> I love that. The slime bucket. I got yeah, it. Felt, it felt like last night was like um, in the Pee Wee Herman's great adventure when, when he and his bully just sat there saying, I know you are, but what am I? I know you are, but what am I? It was, it was, it was ridiculous. So I, I do miss the good old days when there was at least some degree of professional respect amongst the people that were on stage and respect for the moderator and the time and also the viewership. But I think in 2023, with all the reality television, people want to be um, 
amazed, aghast, and titillated when they watch a debate. And that's that is the sad state of uh, American politics. Mm-hmm. In yeah. any case, Doug, what do you got for topic two, pal? All right. Well, um, speaking of EV batteries, right? Um, this is some personal experience I've had literally in the last three weeks, right? So I'm going to talk about the electric vehicle battery supply chain, Pete. I'm going to do a little lesson here. Um, and I'm just going to go through the bullet points and I'm going to tell you which one is the most problematic from a warehousing perspective. And I think, um, is going to really uh, be impactful. So, um, the four components, number one is upstream. And we've talked about that. That's literally mining. That's people in other countries, mining materials for the batteries, right? Lithium, cobalt's part of that, graphite. Then the midstream is when they process all of that and purify the raw materials. Uh, and then they use to create whatever the cathodes and all the other kind of stuff. Those are pretty mundane. That's basic blocking and tackling. You're just moving rocks and, and, and things around. Then the downstream, that's battery manufacturing. So they take all the goodies and they start making the batteries and, and, uh, and then get deployed to, uh, to the manufacturing plants. And then there's the end of life. I'm kind of throwing that one in there, but there is going to be a huge um, 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 market for uh, recycling, reduce, reuse, recycle. And um, uh, that's going to be a whole reverse uh, return supply chain. But the downstream one, Pete, is, is going to be a little, little crazy. So here's, here's the deal. We had a client that called and wanted to warehouse 600 batteries for a high-end EV uh, plant that is in Hanford, California. And most people would be like, yeah, no problem. Throw them in the corner and, and we'll call it good. When you get that many batteries together under one roof, the amount of compliance and the amount of fire suppression and the amount of boxes that you have to check with local municipalities to make sure the place isn't going to implode and burn to the ground is unbelievable. I have firsthand experience towards it. And we, Pete, walked away from it. And my company specializes in hazardous and packaged chemicals. So it's insane. I don't think people realize that, yeah, let's import these batteries from China let, let, let's manufacture them in bulk and just put them in the corner. It's a big deal. And California is a little wacky as it is with compliance stuff, but still it, it, it's a big deal. And I think it's going to be my personal opinion. It's going to be problematic. And I think you're going to see a lot of that uh, where companies are going to own the rails because the amount of money that you're going to have to invest in order to store finished products of electric and lithium batteries is is not on the radar and it's going to be problematic. So that downstream part of the four of the four parts that I had just uh, made mention of is going to be uh, an interesting uh, discussion and it'll be interesting to see how uh, companies deal with it. Agreed. Uh, the the American EV consumer is uh, only tangentially aware of the complexities of battery transportation. The EV manufacturer is viciously aware and they are looking for every opportunity to sidestep liability and put it in the hands of a third party, mm-hmm. which is wise. It's wise. If, if I were in the same situation, I would be doing the same thing because it allows them to competitively manufacture this and hopefully keep it in the hands of someone else if something were to go wrong. And they're going to have to find wise ways to do it. 
it's an opening for another company to do it, but that other company has to have their own house in order to deal with a liability, mm -hmm. have insurance in place and manage it. And it ain't easy. If you want us to do it, we're going to have to charge you a fee that may put it out of reach for that company to do. Mm -hmm. So they're, they're going to have to figure out if the juice is worth the squeeze from a liability perspective. I don't know if that's necessarily going to be the case. Yeah. And as these batteries become more and more powerful and they're, let's not forget, still very experimental at this stage. As they yeah. become more and more experimental and as we, we continue to tinker with them, companies uh, like ours are, are going to have to um, consider the ramifications of playing in that sandbox. So mm -hmm. uh, I guess we'll continue to see, Doug. Yeah, yeah, for sure. There'll be stories. There'll be stories about somebody that didn't do it right. That building burned yeah. to the ground and they're out of business because they didn't prepare for it. So yeah, again, Doug, the scariest thing I ever saw was a container of lithium batteries that had to go overboard in a ship and it just kept on burning as it, <laughs> as it sunk down into the ocean. That I mean, it was terrifying. See something burning underwater. You're like, how is that possible? Yeah. You know, but it, it didn't need it just had to run out of oxygen, you know, it had to run out of fuel as it was just going, oh, it was just terrifying, man. It's terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. All, right. All right, bring um, us home, man. This is the last topic before our big show next week. Yeah, so this topic is, um, again, kind of <laughs> of the terrifying variety that Bricks all met this week. You know, they're hanging out in Africa, and uh, Mr. Putin didn't show up. There was a surprise. Um, but when they, when they met, China really hammered home this idea that they need to take banking and their own financial health out of the hands of the West. So your, your Brazil's, your China's, your India's, they, they need to find a way to not be beholden on moving currency, moving their finances and managing their own financial health, well-being and sovereignty out of Western banks, particularly the United States, and have the ability to manage their markets without any interdiction, without the pesky Office of Foreign Asset Control always being over their shoulder. And in reality, this is a very self-serving attitude by our good friends in China, who are seeing right now how that can get in the way of their own energy independence, because they're still buying so much from Russia. But then again, so is India, um, and so is Iran. So are a lot of countries that we don't necessarily always see eye to eye with. Uh, and as you would again imagine, it was met with a whole lot of, yeah, it's not a bad idea. But because of the, um, the global reach of these Western banks, because of the overall adoption by every other trading nation on the planet with the use of these, and because of the structure and the security and the overall faith in that banking system, it's really being met with a lot of, nah. And I, I think because so many of the, the companies that are, are working through these resources, um, that they are international and that so much of this is being done across borders and across countries where these companies are based in Western nations, it's going to be a really hard road to hoe, Doug, a very hard road to hoe. So until China has a currency that is generally accepted globally, until the RMB has a whole lot more RMB to play with, it's just going to be very difficult to get the rest of the world to take this seriously. Is it mm -hmm. possible? Yes. Is it likely? I really don't think so. Yeah. Well, I saw that uh, in the meeting that they uh, BRICS invited Iran and Saudi Arabia to join the party. Yes, uh, it's almost 
So one, one thing, I, I was unfamiliar with it. So BRICS is an acronym for Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. So that's where you get that, that list. And now they're trying to, to, to expand, right? But um, it's almost like developing this, uh, you know, I mean, the European Union and BRICS, it's almost like they're both kind of building up and you got to pick your side. We've talked about that in, in the past. And it's, you know, the, the Death Star versus whatever the other thing was in Star Wars. But um, uh, it, it, it's interesting to see. Let's add more people that the U.S. government um, does not align with, right? Oh, how about Iran and Saudi Arabia, right? So it's just interesting to see how that's going to uh, to evolve. And Pete, one of the biggest concerns and, and, and things I'm thinking about is how are they going to rename the acronym, right? I'm all about <laughs> acronyms, and I, I don't know how they're going to do that, but that's really the most important thing in this conversation. Yeah, just call them the haters. Get it out of the way. <laughs> Hate us because they ain't us, man. Just call it what it is. Yeah, yeah. Throw in North All Korea right. while you're at it. Let's just get it out of the way. Yeah, yeah. We'll come up with an acronym. It'll be very inappropriate, and we won't talk about it on the air. Yeah. So anyway, great show, Pete. This is awesome. I'm so excited to see you in person uh, for the first time in a long time. It'll be a great show next week uh, in the field. And if you're in Denver and around, come and visit us. We'll, we'll drink some beers and have a good time. So Can't until wait. then, Pete, great to see you again. Thanks for all your insight. And our listeners, thanks for joining us on Global Trade This Week. See Take you, care, buddy. Pete. See you next week. <laughs>